Hey guys, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we are going to rebroadcast episode number 69, which is all about eating. What happens when you get hungry, when you eat, and what happens when you don't eat? Basically, this is going to be about all things food. It's a fun one. So, let's kick into it. So, first we need to go through what happens when we eat food, which is funny because when I was in biology in middle school, we had to do an oral exam where we walked through the process of what happens when you eat a carbohydrate or a protein or a sugar or water, and you drew a card, and then you got to pick one of those things and walk all the way through it with Dr. Shooks, my biology teacher. Now, it was really awesome to get water because that one's really easy, but you're going to understand all of this a little bit better in a minute. So, every day we eat food. I mean, most of us. Most of us eat food every day. But why? We eat food so we can stay alive, right? Simple answer. It's a little more complicated than that if you dig into it. Basically, food is the building blocks of life. It is the nutrients that keeps our body running and helps us grow, and we literally use the components of food to build out our bodies. We're constantly making new cells and excreting fluids all throughout our bodies and all of that stuff that we do. Every hormone, every chemical doesn't just come out of the ether. It's made from the stuff that we put into our body through our mouth. Now, our body does things that make us want to eat. We evolved to eat. It's something that we do. And when we haven't eaten in a bit, hormones are released that tell our brain that we need to eat. Then once we do eat, it reduces those hormones, it ups other hormones, and that's how we know we're not hungry anymore. Again, it gets way more complicated than this. So first, we should talk about the hormone ghrelin. And once our bodies have used up all the food that we've consumed, or enough of it that we're starting to think about hunger again out here, what's happening inside is that the hormone ghrelin is being excreted. It tells the hypothalamus, where things like sleep, mood, sex drive, and hunger are regulated, that our blood sugar is dropping and we need to eat. So the brain releases neuropeptide Y, the primary hunger signal, and now you are hungry. But being hungry doesn't really tell you what to eat, right? You have to crave something. I mean, you don't always have to. Sometimes you just want to shove food in your face, especially when you're real busy at work, right? But chances are you are craving something pretty much every day. Now, cravings have something to do with how our bodies evolved. We crave sugars because we need those to survive. We crave fats and salts because those are also rare things in nature. We like those things because when we can get them, they're good for us. Now, today, we have them everywhere, so that craving can hurt us. But back in the day, you ate what you could find, what you could hunt for and forage. You didn't have room to be picky. You just needed to eat to survive. So that's where those drives come from. Today, preferences actually start, they think, in the uterus. In the second trimester, the sense of taste and smell develop, and babies are born with a preference to sweetness. A mother's diet can also affect the milk that she then passes on to her baby. So studies show a mother's diet can predict her child's food preferences. A study found that women who drank carrot juice while feeding had children who were more likely to eat carrots than women who didn't drink carrot juice. But there aren't tons of studies on this because there are so many variables to consider. So obviously, my favorite phrase, more research is needed. But another reason that we want to eat something specific also comes from childhood, and that is memory. We crave foods that we've had before. Our brain is telling us we enjoyed it once. We can have this again, right? This could come from repeated experiences. You know, the more you eat something, the more you're going to like it for the most part. But it also could come from memories of textures or smells or something that makes you happy. Birthday cake, French fries with your 
your dad or your mom or something. We also have aversions to certain flavors coded into our development, like how babies love sweets. They don't like bitterness. Some people eventually develop a taste for bitter foods, but others don't. It kind of comes with the territory. The reason is sweetness indicates sugars. Sugars are something we need. Bitterness indicates foods that might be off or not as good for you, according to research that scientists have done. So that might be why we don't like it. However, you can learn to like it. Where you put the food that you want to eat is also very important and what happens in there. So once you've decided you're hungry and you've decided that you crave something specific like an apple, you have to take that apple and you have to put it somewhere. Fun fact. Chewing your food is important. I know that sounds crazy, but it's super important. You have to chew your food so that it can be mixed in with saliva. Saliva, by the way, fun fact that I discovered recently when I did some genetic testing, you have to fill up a vial with some of your saliva. Saliva is not always clear. We think of it as a clear liquid, but it's actually opaque. It's produced by salivary glands, and it's made up of water and mucus and electrolytes and enzymes, and it's the beginning of the digestive process. This is the top of your digestive tract. So saliva starts that digestive process, but it also lubricates your food and makes it easier for you to swallow. An enzyme called amylase helps break down starches into maltose or malt sugar, and that way it's absorbed easier into the small intestine. It also turns things into glucose, which helps fuel your body. Saliva also keeps your mouth healthy. It has antibacterial properties and helps clean things. It actually, it does a lot of stuff. It's really, really cool. But we're mostly talking about eating. Dental hygiene can be a whole other episode. Additionally, saliva Saliva triggers more digestion processes going on later in the GI tract. Basically, it tells your stomach, hey, hey, food's on its way. Get ready. So if we follow that bite of that apple, you get saliva-soaked food going down your esophagus, which is about 8 inches or 20 centimeters. And once it enters the esophagus, the parasympathetic nervous system starts to move the muscles in your esophagus to push it down there. At the top and the bottom of the esophagus are sphincters. You have a few of those in your body. And that relaxes to let food through, obviously. And then out of the esophagus into the stomach. And that's basically it. You've now started eating. I mean, technically you started when you put the food in your mouth. But once it gets into your body a little bit more, that's when it really becomes useful. Once you're in the stomach... This is where food gets mixed with digestive liquids. The stomach looks kind of like a big comma, right? (laughs) Food gets churned up and broken down by the gastric juices and enzymes inside your stomach. Again, these are muscle contractions that you're not consciously controlling, right? But there are muscles in there moving stuff around. The main enzyme inside of your stomach acting on your food is pepsin. You make three to four liters of gastric juices every day. And just like saliva breaks down starch, the gastric juices break down your proteins. Hydrochloric acid is secreted in your stomach as well. That helps kill bacteria and further digest your food. It also secretes a mucus inside of the stomach that clings to the walls of it so that that acid and all those enzymes that are working on the food don't also work on your stomach. It's very smart. Good job, body. Muscles work to turn all of this stuff into a nice thick cream, and I hope you're not eating right now because this is the grossest part. Uh, It's really nasty. But anyway, once it's in this thick cream, it's then squirted into the small intestine out of the bottom of the stomach through one of my favorite words in the digestive tract, the duodenum. Duodenum. It's just a great word. So once it's done breaking it down, that's called chyme, another great word. Ugh, gross. 
So now that thick chyme is squirted out into your lower intestinal tract and it breaks down that food a little bit more. The small intestines are 20 feet long and that's where your body absorbs most of the nutrients in there that's all broken down. First, food goes into that small intestine and food from the stomach mixes with enzymes from the pancreas, bile from the gallbladder, and that breaks down food even more. Then the jejunum, which is where the walls of the intestine absorb nutrients into the bloodstream, and that looks like kind of an accordion, pretty much. Folds inside of that small intestine help make the surface area greater. Same with cilia, it makes absorption even easier. And that's where it gets into the blood, where it can actually be put to use. It can be absorbed into capillary walls and into cells, things like amino acids and vitamins and sugars and salts and things that we can use to build our body. That's the process all the way to the cell. So, That's assuming, of course, you're eating healthy foods. Otherwise, you're probably going to have a lot of sugars and a lot of salts. It's finally going to good use. Then you get to the ileum. That's where bile acids are absorbed and sent into the liver to make more bile and put back into the gallbladder, and that's where vitamin B12 is made. So all this stuff is what happens to that little bit of apple as it goes into your body. And now you come to the fun part. We've done all the small intestine. We've gone through all 20 feet, and we're heading into the large intestine. This is basically what happens after all of the nutrients have been absorbed, and what's left behind is a mixture of other things like fiber and water. So large intestine is supposed to absorb those things. And then it just kind of hangs out. Waits till next time you excuse yourself to go to the bathroom and see a man about a horse. It absorbs any remaining nutrients and changes that at liquid waste into solid stool. It moves about a centimeter per hour. And you open up another sphincter, and out it goes, hopefully into a toilet. The feeling of uh, being full comes along in this process. If you eat a whole apple, maybe you're not hungry anymore. It's called uh, being satiated, and your body makes another chemical to tell all these processes, hey, hey, we're good, we're good. This is referred to as CKK or cholecystokinin. And this is made when food hits the first part of those small intestines to help relay the message, hey, it's gotten to the part we're going to absorb some stuff, go back to the brain and tell them we're good. And that's how eating works. That's why you're hungry. That's what happens when you eat. Something a lot of people don't think about, but if you really like sit down and you know stare up at the stars for a minute and think about your body, we're sort of just like a tube. There's a big tube. It's weird. Anyway, we don't have time to go into all of the different hormones and all of the different enzymes that are acting on the food throughout this process. Sorry, Dr. Shooks. But we thought you would enjoy taking that journey through the human body, especially, you know, thinking about how that apple becomes poop. That's pretty fun. So now you know what happens when you eat something, but what happens when you don't eat something? You know, if your body starts telling you, hey, can you eat? And you're like, nah, bro, I can't. What happens? When you eat food, your body takes these delicious things into it and it breaks it all down and absorbs nutrients through the small intestine and turns that into energy that's sent to your cells. But your cells still need energy even if you aren't eating. They have to break stuff down elsewhere in the body and go to your storage units and break down everything that's in there. We all have hunger pangs. That's a big deal. It's not actually hunger pain, it's pang. Get it right. Also, you don't chomp at the bit, you champ at the bit, which is related, but it just has to do with pronunciation. I think it's important to pronounce things right, because champing means chewing and not swallowing. Chomping means swallowing. Anyway, 
Hunger pangs are that feeling that you get when you are hungry, that pain that you get. You feel it in your stomach. It's a muscle contraction that causes it. And remember how we talked about how the stomach processes food, it mushes things up and stuff, churns it, mix it with juices and fluids, breaks it down, all that stuff from yesterday. These muscles do that when there's no food in there. They do that all the time. These contractions are what gives you the pangs. One researcher found this out by swallowing a balloon attached to an air hose. He inflated it in the stomach, measured the contractions of those muscles. Actually kind of crazy. But that's what gives you hunger pangs. It means that you need to eat. This is also what causes your stomach to growl. Sometimes it's so loud that our camera guy can hear it in the microphones because I'm hungry, I'm a hungry guy. Your stomach sometimes will churn and those muscles will move stuff around and make noise. But when it's full of stuff, you can't hear the noise. And also because you like words and we like talking about specific words here on DNews Plus, the growling is called borborygmi or borborygmi. It's actually an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like a sound. That's another word. Gosh, you're getting so much out of this. The contractions happen about every hour until you eat again. Before I explain anything else, I want to tell you about the socks that I'm wearing right now because they are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They are called Bombas, and their arch support system and stay-up technology make for a sock that stays in place while giving you all the support where you need it. All of my other socks, they're just not good enough anymore, right? Go to bombas.com seeker. Use the code seeker for 20% off your first order of Bombas. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot seeker. Code seeker. You'll get 20% off your first order. Okay. Back to the science. Hunger also appears in the brain. Talked a little bit about this in the last episode. Our brain tells us we're hungry. It's the control center of the body. It makes food memories, and it makes us salivate and want food. But if we ignore all of this stuff, we ignore the pangs, we ignore the growls, we ignore the salivation and the release of this hormone ghrelin, what happens? If you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, find out what ghrelin is. Talk about it then. So the whole point of eating is to replenish nutrients. We need those nutrients for our body to keep working. After about six hours, your body starts breaking down some reserves called glycogen. Glycogen is an energy reserve, and it exists for times like this when you can't get food. It's broken down into glucose to maintain our body until the next meal. But we only have so much glycogen. It's actually not very much. Only enough for about six hours. About six hours after your last meal, you go into a state of ketosis. This is when the body doesn't have enough glucose and needs to supplement that loss. So, because it can't exactly like lash out and find something somewhere else, can't go run to the store, it has to find it elsewhere. And where it goes is to your fat cells, which is why if you Google ketosis, a lot of dieting websites come up and things because fat is broken down into something called ketone bodies. The fat has to be broken up. That fatty lipid is too big. It can't be used by the body in that form. But if we break it down, then we can use it. It can't cross the blood-brain barrier as it is to fuel the brain so you can keep thinking and functioning and try and find some food. So hopefully... You're, you know, doing that. So once fat is broken down into ketones, they're small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier, and that keeps your brain going. Now, if you continue to not eat, by day three, 30% of the energy to your brain is from a ketone. By day four, 70% of your energy is coming from that, and your brain will need to lower the amount of glucose that it will need to function. 
because now it's a serious issue. This is an emergency. By day three, you're not feeling great. Your body really, really, really needs energy. We're out of the simple sugar of glucose. We're out of a lot of the fats that were simple to break down, but the body needs more energy. It needs to keep going. We can't exactly go into hibernation mode, selfish body. We gotta go somewhere else and find some energy. So at this point, your body starts looking for proteins floating around in there, breaks them down into amino acids, and it will become, again, glucose, which keeps your body happy, but not a lot of glucose in comparison to your stores that you used to have. But of course, there are consequences here because proteins make up your muscles. So as they're broken down, you're actually eating your own muscles to keep yourself alive. It's called autophagy. It's Greek meaning eating of self. So as your body begins to eat itself to feed the brain, you're going to start losing muscle mass. Next, it has to break down something else because it can only break down so much of your muscle mass to you know, feed itself. Your fat's gone. Your muscles are gone. Let's start breaking down the immune system. That's next. Without proper nutrients from eating, your immune system will get extremely weak because you won't be able to make new cells because your body will be eating itself. In fact, you may die of a weak immune system before you would die from a literal starvation, from literally lacking food. If you survive that far, that's hard. There are two things that might happen. Marasmus, basically energy deficiency from malnourishment and you like waste away. And then quashorocor, which results in body fluid buildup, enlarging the liver, which gives those starving people, you you see that distended stomach. That is uh, what's going on there. There's also things like diarrhea and fatigue and swelling. And eventually, if you just let it go on and on, the body will just give out, probably from cardiac arrest because your heart muscles have already wasted away. They've been eaten by your own body, making it weak, so eventually it can't pump blood and it just stops. In 1944, at the University of Minnesota, they did a study on starvation where 36 fit young men were put on a regular diet for three months, followed by what they called a semi-starvation diet in order to study what happens during starvation. Not just what happens to your body, but also the mental effects of starvation. The men, of course, lost a significant amount of weight, but they also had decreases in staminas, in sex drives, in body temperatures, and heart rates. The study was started in order to help during World War II to understand how to treat starving people. But the war ended before the study actually did. Because if someone is starving, I don't know if you've ever had experience with this or seen a movie or a television show, you can't just give them food. If someone is literally starving, they can't just walk into a McDonald's and buy, you know, a big meal. It won't work. There needs to be someone easing them back in. Because otherwise your body might get shocked. It's not used to all of these glucoses and sugars and amino acids just flooding the body. And it'd be like, sitting in a car that's broken and jamming on the gas pedal. You're going to break it even more. Recently, scientists have found really, really interesting stuff that the effects of starvation don't just affect the person starving. They can last more than just during your lifetime. A study published in the journal Cell found pregnant worms that were starved passed on a genetic memory, if you will, of that starvation to the next three generations because starvation changed their DNA. It's called epigenetics. Researchers think that this is a way for parents to prepare their children for future hardships. Essentially, the worms are saying, hey, kids, don't be super hungry when you're born because we won't have that much food. 
and that might give them a chance for survival. Whereas if they come out expecting lots of bounty and don't get it, they might die. So now we know what happens if you eat food and get that sweet, sweet chyme. Now we know what happens if you don't eat food. But how long can we last like this? How long could we be in starvation mode? I mean, there's no official number because it depends on the environment, the amount of fat that you had when you started. It depends on access to water because that's very important outside of need for food. Initial health of the person who is starving. So survival time can vary and it's super unethical for scientists to study this in an empirical way where they just starve a bunch of people and watch them, right? That's not cool. So data has been taken from patients in vegetative states once patients are taken off of artificial sustenance. They stay alive usually about 10 to 12 days. Gandhi, however, lasted 21 days of total starvation, only taking sips of water, and hunger strikers have been documented at surviving 28, 36, 38, and 40 days without eating. Recently, a Palestinian prisoner ended a 94-day hunger strike drinking water and was given nutrient supplements for a couple of days in the middle of his strike. 94 days with just water and some nutrient supplements. I mean, that itself sounds torturous. I'm sure you're wondering about how long we can live without water. Water needs to be replaced constantly. We're we're using it all the time. Our organs won't work properly. Our blood literally gets thicker and sludgy. It's not good. It also keeps our body temperature down. So three to five days without water. Not very many. But when it comes to fasting or diets, or if you're in an extreme situation, make sure to stay hydrated. But maybe you just don't like to eat, you know? There is an alternative world where humans can stop eating, you know, in the future, in fiction. But they still have a functioning body. Is that something that we can get here in the real lives? There is a group that claims that they can live off prana, which is a Sanskrit word for life air, breatharians. Basically, they just feel they don't need food or water. They just breathe. So new followers who are breatharians are told to first become a vegetarian, then convert to vegan, then convert to raw food, then convert to liquid only. And finally, once you've pared down your liquid food enough, you should just be able to ingest air and you live forever or whatever. Air and light from the sun fuels your body, they say, and gives you nutrients. Though some breatharians have said they do put food in their mouth, you know, just for taste. Because air is probably pretty bland after a while. We can't live off air, guys. That's not a real thing. I'm just saying, we can't. Multiple breatharians have died trying to do this because they starve themselves to death. Go back and listen to what happens when you starve yourself to death. You do not want to try this. One of the principal things on this thinking is the belief that we can sustain on light, but we're not plants, we don't have chlorophyll, we cannot photosynthesize energy. Plants take that sunlight and that's what they do. Humans can't do that. One doctor was quoted in an article and said, it's delusional to think you can escape the laws of biology. That's a quote. It's possible to survive for longer periods without food though. Just not on breath, okay? As we went over, your body needs to ingest something because it builds cells, it fulfills all of the needs and the nutrients in your body or it's going to start eating itself to find those nutrients. But something doesn't necessarily need to be food. One computer engineer had the same question, could you sustain without food on something else? Rob Reinhart was his name. And obviously you learned earlier that you need all of these things to eat. So the guy came up with a food alternative called Soylent. Yeah, he's in on the joke. He made it up. 
you still have to eat it, but it's not necessarily food. Reinhardt started to think of the body as a machine and broke down the things that the body needed to intake in order to make sure that the machine operates. Kind of like a car. A car needs fuel in order to function in the same way that the human body does. So he studied physiology and nutrition and biology and came up with this substance that he says is the perfect substance to be a new fuel. So first, he started experimenting with his own body, used trial and error, and added magnesium and electrolytes and potassium, and every time he changed it, it got a little different result. Some gave him more energy, some made him sick. Food is very delicate balance. It's something we've evolved to enjoy over the last two million years or so, and at the end, his final product had 39 different ingredients, vitamins, minerals, olive oil, fish oil, carbohydrates, probiotics, antioxidants, all in a liquid form. It's actually a powdered form, and then you drink it by mixing it with water. He claims that it works. He lost weight, he got in better shape, he said his dandruff cleared up. There are skeptics who aren't sure that this is proof that your body will be getting everything it needs, that this mixture isn't something we would normally get. Maybe there's a disease that this wouldn't give us the building blocks to fight. We're not really sure. People began to try it, and one writer tried living off it for a whole month. We only tried a week. And people were like, hangry all the time, guys, all the time. People were mad all the time. It was crazy. But the writer concluded that, yeah, it made him feel fine. But not eating affected him socially. It's hard to walk around, meet friends. You don't meet for a meal because you don't eat. In a world that ate real food, this guy felt like an outcast. We like variety in what we eat and variety in our flavors. Soylent doesn't have those things either. You just drink a shake all day. Again, tastes like cake batter and fish, which is weird. But this is a cheaper way to eat, a cheaper way to keep our bodies running properly, and maybe it's a solution for places where food is scarce or where food is difficult to get, where starvation is an actual threat. They can send Soylent in and potentially help those people out. The idea is nothing new. I mean, look at like futuristic television shows, cartoons, and movies from the 40s and 50s. People would eat a pill and they would be okay for the day. That's sort of the promise of something like this. But people who are doing this because they have to, that's not really the same, right? Hospitals, they make sure that you eat. There are different types of diet shakes. There are all sorts of different ways that you can ingest calories and nutrients without eating food. But eventually, you might still need to have a meal of some kind. Even the guy who invented Soylent admits that sometimes he does eat. Because it's not really a food replacement. He says sometimes he does like to eat socially, but he doesn't do it all the time. Our body still needs nutrients. And if that means eating, you know, steak and potatoes or broccoli and cheese or whatever it is, we need to do something. There's no magical pill or breathable vapor or light source that can deliver all of these nutrients into our body like food can. And if we don't eat, our own body starts to eat us, which is kind of crazy. Thanks so much, y'all, for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. I really hope you loved this episode. If you did, please leave us a rating, share this podcast with your friends, and if you have comments, come find us on Twitter at Seeker. You can find me out there too at Trace Dominguez. Make sure you come find us and all our other shows on YouTube and Facebook as well. I'm Trace. Thanks for listening. 